Please take your hymnals and turn with me to the book of Romans, again to chapter 8, verses 9 through 11. If you were with us last week, you may recall I preached only verse 9. We read all three verses. These are intimately linked verses. You can't just easily pick one without then having and needing to reference and then preach and study the others. And so on this Lord's Day, we're going to come back to these verses. We're going to study verse 9 again, parts that we didn't touch upon last week. And then we're going to go verses 10 and 11 and finish this section, Lord willing, this morning. Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 11. Hear the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin... The Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. The word of the Lord our God, the fountain of life, the one that directs us to Christ through the Holy Spirit. Let us praise God and receive his word with thanksgiving. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you that you would speak to us. Lord, you are transcendent, a God unimaginable in his fullness. Yet you have revealed yourself with simple words so that tiny ears upon your creatures may hear, and minds that struggle with understanding may understand. O Lord, we pray that you would work in us this morning. O Lord, that light would be shined upon your word. O Lord, that we would know you more, and that, Lord, we would rejoice in what the grace of Christ has given to all who will believe in him. Father, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, as we came to these verses, the thing that we studied very specifically from verse 9 was the residence of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the third person of the Trinity. How is it that the Holy Spirit is then given to anybody? And you may recall that we looked at the scriptures and we were told and taught that we only come to receive the Spirit by hearing the word of truth, by receiving the testimony of the gospel, and that then the Holy Spirit indwells the Christian. So it is hearing, it is faith, and it is the word of God. And last week as we studied verse 9, very specifically we touched upon how we do receive the Holy Spirit in contrast with how we do not. And in the face of false teaching, we saw what the Bible was actually 
intending for Christians to know and to believe about their own salvation. Yet another thing from verse 9 that we touched upon last week is this, and that is, there is no such thing as a Christian who hasn't received the Holy Spirit. It's as simple, it is as clear as possible in verse 9. At the close of verse 9, we read together, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. And remember, that point was made because there are people today that would have you believe that if you send them some money, if you are more faithful in your attendance, if you are more sincere in the way you participate in this or that, then they have the power to lay on hands or by some other thing, the waving of their arms or their sports coat at you, that they can give you the Holy Spirit as a second blessing. And the Bible calls this, in essence, anathema. It is unfaithful teaching and it cannot be squared with verse 9, specifically the second portion of it. And the reason why we labored in that is because there is so much charismatic confusion in the church today. And maybe you've been confused. And so we turned last week to the Bible to have clarity so that we would see things as the Bible teaches it and have a sense of what Christ has done for us in the Holy Spirit. Today we're going to study three specific things. The first of them, in verses 9 through 11, is the reception of the Trinity. Or otherwise, receiving the Trinity. We've talked about the reception of the Holy Spirit. Now we're going to talk about receiving the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Then in verse 10 and 11, we're going to have two latter points that speak about the two great gifts of the Holy Spirit. The first of them, verse 10, regenerating grace. Regenerating grace. And then in verse 11, resurrection grace. Resurrection grace. And I should say... But the way I've outlined this is so common because it's necessary. This is just so natural from the text. You may hear other preachers, pastors, theologians talk about this, and they're going to break it down in very similar fashion. That's a right thing. You should not want original sermons. You should want sermons that are faithful in the manner in which the Bible teaches and that the church has always understood the text to mean. And so we turn verses 9 through 11 to the idea to the teaching and the theology of the reception of the Trinity. And here, Paul is inviting us to focus on a theology that he expresses in these verses, even though he doesn't directly point to it. It is almost as if Paul assumes that you understand this and that you are with him, that you believe in the Trinity, and that you understand, at least with some clarity, The union of the persons of the Godhead. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Three persons, yet one God. The same in substance, equal in power and glory. Now last week as we read those verses and as we studied verse 9, you may have caught that. You may have seen the diversity of Paul's thought. And you may have understood him. Or you may have seen this and caught Paul's theology and this 
way that he speaks about the Holy Spirit, giving a variety of titles for the same person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, and you may have been very confused by it. Or then some of you may have not been reading or listening very carefully, a little bit tired from the night before, and you may have missed it entirely. And so I want you to look at these verses with me. We're going to go verses 9, 10, and 11, all three. And we're going to pay attention to how Paul calls the Holy Spirit, the titles, the way he speaks about him. And he does it with great diversity, very rapidly, and without almost any explanation. So look at verse 9. We read together, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. That's the first thing he calls the Holy Spirit, simply the Spirit. That's clear. There's no confusion remotely present there. And then you go on in verse 9 and you have a second title that Paul calls the Holy Spirit. He says, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. The second title, the Spirit of God. Who's he talking about here? Why does he just call him the Holy Spirit again? It's because Paul is expressing a theology about who the Holy Spirit is in the face of the Father and the Son. Now, the Spirit of God title, this could mean, this very well could mean, any sort of pointing or finger toward the Father. It could mean that. But I think that it simply means the Spirit of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, the Spirit of the Trinity, the Spirit of of God. So this is a title toward his unity and his place even with the Father and the Son. But then in the same verse, verse 9, Paul goes and speaks about the Holy Spirit a third time. So look there with me and you go on and he says in the latter part of verse 9, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. The third title that's then applied to the Holy Spirit. And you go, okay, well that's a little different. We're very familiar with the Holy Spirit, but now he calls him the Spirit of Christ. Is this speaking about a person or just Jesus' inner spiritual person? This is talking yet again about the Holy Spirit. And it is referencing the Holy Spirit in light of Jesus. It is pointing his person, his work, to the ministry of God the Son. Let's be really clear about that. And I just want to stop and I want to point out something that a very wooden reading of verse 9 would expect Paul to write differently. He would expect verse 9 to read exactly like this. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit does not belong to him. But he doesn't do that. Paul has a diversity of titles for the Holy Spirit. He's intentional. And the reason for that is he is expressing to you a theology about the Holy Spirit in the face of the Father and the Son in eternal communion with them. Will you go on? And the theology of the Holy Spirit in the Trinity gets bigger. And in verse 10... He does something that will make you have a question. In verse 10 he writes, But if Christ is in you, 
If Christ is in you. And so who's he talking about? Because he's already talked to us about the Holy Spirit being in us. And us in the Holy Spirit. And if your theology is sober and understandable, you know that Jesus is not just a spiritual and divine being, but that he is likewise altogether human. And that his spirituality and his divinity are intimately and inseparably connected to his humanity. He's the God-man hypostatically united. And so if you're going to have Christ in you, indwelling, you're going to have the whole Christ. And it would be a very difficult thing to get your mind around the fullness of a whole person inside of every single person. Because after all, haven't we studied that Christ in his humanity and in his divinity is located at the right hand of the Father? It's simple. He has ascended to the Father. So who is he talking about? In Christ and us, well, he is speaking with reference to the Holy Spirit. And he can call one by the name of the other because of their union. The closeness of the persons of the Godhead. That you can distinguish Father from Son and Son from Holy Spirit. But you can't divide them. They are distinguishable but inseparable. So that to see the Son is to see the Father. To think on the Father is to think on the Son. And likewise the Holy Spirit. They can't be ripped out of their own context and made into two, three, four, fifteen different gods or persons. There are three persons, yet one God. And so Paul speaks to that. And he says, but if Christ is in you, and you and I, as Christians, certainly in this church, are very used to people being described, if they're Christians as being in Christ, or if they're not believing Christians, not being in Christ. It's common that none of us have the confusion that there is a physical indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so you may say, but pastor, it just says Christ. Are you making a little thing, a long thing, or are you making a lot out of absolutely nothing? Well, keep on reading, because we're Bible readers Our theology and our understanding of verses come from those verses. So look at verse 10. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. These things are linked. And in this description of the Holy Spirit being so closely identified with Christ... He is saying a significant and a magnificent thing to me and to you. And it's this. That if you've received the Holy Spirit, you have not only received him, but you have received union with Christ. The fullness of his blessings. All of his gifts. All of the forgiveness. All of his work. And you've received him you've received him and Paul goes on and again notice he doesn't just stop he doesn't give you a whole commentary on this he says it and he moves right on it's not his main message however it is his underlying theology it's what he believes about God and about the work of the Holy Spirit 
In verse 10, I'm sorry, in verse 11, we go on and we have him speak about the Holy Spirit again. Firstly, in verse 11, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus. The Spirit of Him who raised Jesus. Well, who is Him? Who is Him? Well, I'll tell you this it's not Jesus. Jesus was the one raised by him. It's not Jesus that he's talking about. It's also not some sort of strange and redundant thing that it's the spirit of him and him is actually the spirit. Why would you say the spirit of the spirit? That makes no sense. Paul is giving reference directly, uniquely, not only to the Holy Spirit, but to the Father. The spirit of him who raised Jesus, the Spirit of the Father. And again, you see this wonderful union at play. The life of the Father, the life of the Son, and the life of the Holy Spirit, inseparably connected. He goes on and he speaks that he will also give life to your mortal bodies, this verse 11, through His spirit, he's still again speaking to the Father, I believe. To the Father. And so again, you have all three persons of the Trinity at play and being spoken of, all to describe the ministry that the Holy Spirit has in us as we are indwelled by him through believing in Jesus. That's a lot of diversity. It's a whole lot, even just in verse 9. And it's something that plenty of people would look at and just simply say, well, the Bible can't work that way. When he says the Spirit, he just means one thing. Well, that's just silly. Paul can be every bit as diverse as you and me. He has way, way more capacity than language I would submit to you than you do or I do. If you think you're smarter than the Apostle Paul, then you're a lot smarter than me. Let me say that. He's not accidental. He's not reckless. He's also not being creative. He doesn't adopt this language to just be diverse in his writing style. No, he is trying to draw your attention specifically to the Holy Spirit's ministry to us in light of all of the persons of the Trinity. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And so we might literally, sincerely, and accurately say that when we have received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, likewise, we have received the Trinity. All three persons, yet one God. And why does Paul do this? Well, I think it's because he is confronting a misunderstanding, possibly, that you may have, that plenty of people have today, and that is that at any given time, God is only active in one of his persons. Now, what does that mean? Some people teach, or maybe even you've accidentally thought, well, in the Old Testament, well, that's the time when God the Father did a lot of work, because the Son hadn't come onto the scene yet, and it seemed like the Holy Spirit, well, he's just kind of in that one place in the temple. 
And then in the New Testament, you have the the coming of the Son. And so this is the time that God the Son does work. And then you have Pentecost and the Holy Spirit comes down because the Son has gone away. And so it just seems clearly that at one time the Father is active, at another time the Son is active, and yet at another time the Holy Spirit is active. And that is so close to the heresy of modalism. That you just have a God that's like a chameleon and he changes his skin back and forth. But you don't have three constant, consistent persons that at all times have communion one with another. And you might say, well, is Paul just making stuff up? Where is he getting this? Well, I want to tell you that Jesus is kind of aware of this. He knows that people are confused. If you have your Bible, turn over to John 14, verses 8 through 11 with me. Jesus is dealing with Philip, his disciple. And Philip is struggling with this, at least in some sense. He's struggling with faith. In verse 8, Philip says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And do you see Jesus' response? Verse 9. Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Where does Paul get this theology? From Jesus This is Jesus' clear teaching. And Jesus confronted the same thing as we may be confused and look on the sun and we think we're only seeing one side of a three-sided story. And Jesus says, no, 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 friend. You've misunderstood entirely. There is unity within the Trinity. And so, friends, I want to encourage you to be confronted with this. Likewise, in the same passage of Scripture, Jesus doesn't only speak about the Father. He speaks about the Holy Spirit. Just look down the page. Not even very far. Verses 15 through 21. Again, speaking to the same guy, he says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth Whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. You say, well, that sounds like another third person after Jesus has left. Yes, it certainly does. But it's what Jesus says right next to explain the coming of the Holy Spirit and the sending of the Holy Spirit that is very relevant. Verse 18 I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Is he talking about an eventual second coming? 
Or is he talking about his continued ministry to Christians through the person of the Holy Spirit? Take option B. He's talking about the continued ministry he has in us. He's not leaving us as orphans, even though he's at the right hand of the Father. As he sends the Holy Spirit, it is his ministry that continues in us as Christians. And pours out all the blessedness of Christ. To the point where Jesus can even say that as the Holy Spirit comes, he's coming with him. He is going to be the persistent and constant minister of the souls of his people because he is in unity with the Holy Spirit. And if the Holy Spirit comes and resides in Christians, we not only have access to God in general, but personal union and communion with all the persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Praise God. And you say, Pastor, I don't know where the application is there. And I would tell you, friends, just look into this magnificent mystery with eyes wide open and let your jaw hit the floor because if you say you can't understand it, good, you're going to receive not only the ministry that the Spirit can give, the illumination of the mind, you're going to receive the love of the Father and the grace flowing from the Son's wounds. It's not just one. It's the fullness of all three that you've received as a Christian. Praise be to God. What mercy. We don't only get a part. There is no longer a dividing curtain. We have the fullness of all of God's blessings given to us freely. By the power of Christ and the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the love of the Father. And so now the two specific great gifts of the Holy Spirit. Firstly, regenerating grace, verse 10. So look down at verse 10 with me. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. So the first thing I want to say to you is notice the very first few words there in verse 10. He said he's writing to Christians. But if Christ is in you, he's talking to Christians, saved people. This isn't just a general comment to the whole world where you've got some people dead in sin and other people who are alive in the Spirit. No, he's writing to Christians. He's writing to me. He's writing to you. People who have professed Christ, who have received Christ, and who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And what does he then say? Right on the back end of his comment to Christians, if you've received Christ, he says he says this although the body is dead because of sin the spirit is life because of righteousness. What does that mean? Haven't we already been told that in Christ we have life and with the Holy Spirit we're given life and there's this new life? How can Paul say to Christians, pastor, that the body still is dead because of sin. What does that mean? Well, I think he's meaning something very clear, that sin results in death. The Bible is so simply, so wonderfully direct about that fact, that sin entered the world and with it brought death 
as a curse for sin. That death is simple. We're not talking about a theoretical and abstract idea. This is death just like would naturally be understood. The decay and demise of a mortal body. Death. You don't know what death is? Tomorrow go buy a steak from Aldi, from Lidl, and just watch it. Don't put it in your refrigerator. Put it on the counter. And try to have a conversation with that steak. Will it answer you? Of course it won't. It's going to be silence. Try to tell that steak to go and chase after the ball you threw. Nothing's going to happen. Put the steak outside. Let it sit there for a few days. You're going to understand a little bit about death. It's not only that it's lifeless. It's not only that it doesn't respond. It is that it stinks and decays and eventually goes away. It's a temporary thing. That's death. It's simple. You know what death is. This is a silly thing to even propose to you. And so please don't read the Bible where it is very simple and make it complex. This isn't theoretical death. He's talking about the death that bodies experience the demise and decay of your flesh. Your fingers, your toes, your whole body. So how do we square this? How do we give any understanding to it? I'm going to share with you a quote that is very often given and shared about this text. It's from Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the great preachers of the past hundred years. And he says, The moment we enter this world, we begin to live and we begin to die. Your first breath is one of the last you will ever take. It's very morbid. The Lord has blessed me to have three children that are more or less obedient. And I've got one on the way. And one of the things that I'll tell you as a father is so wonderful is standing in the hospital. Your wife has just gone through so very much. And you're holding this little, funny-looking, sometimes bald, sometimes screaming creature in in your arms. And you're thinking, wow, this is what's been kicking me for months in bed. Wow, this thing is alive. This baby is here. And he or she, this thing, this is wonderful to me. The last thing you ever think is, well, one, two breaths, three breaths. We better keep a tally. They're only going to get 18 million of these and then they're done. But that's reality. You and I, when we come into this world, because of the fall and sin. We are subject to death as a punishment for sin. Even Christians, even redeemed people, we still experience death. This should be no great surprise to you. This shouldn't be unique. Christian funerals are common. I know, I've done lots of them. Standing at the edge of a bed of a Christian who's dying with this or that disease is common. It's one of the most regular things most ministers and elders ever, ever do. And just because you're a Christian doesn't mean that in this life you then have eternal life and are immortal in your human flesh yet. 
So you as a Christian, if you're clear, you understand things rightly. All the false teaching of so many different teachers. Send me $5 and you're going to have your best life now. Send me this, I'm going to make you happier. You're going to have life more abundant. Do this, do that. You're going to have prosperity. That should all go out the window because any regular, normal, rational Christian understands that you still live in a body that is subject to death because of sin. Moreover, if you're a Christian and you're honest about yourself, you simply know this fact, that death isn't, only a, isn't the only reality, but that likewise your remaining sin is a reality. And so this squares with our experience. It's simple, it's understandable, that one out of one die. Over time, there is a 100% mortality rate. If you haven't faced that, face it today. It's the reality. But that's not all that Paul says. He doesn't only talk about your having a body that is subject to death in verse 10, but he goes on and he says, at the same time, the spirit is life because of righteousness. The spirit is life because of righteousness. These two things at play. And so what is Paul talking about? Well, he's talking about this wonderful reality that if you have received Jesus by faith, if Christ is in you and you are in Christ and have received the Holy Spirit, something has changed in you. And at one time you were dead and had a heart that wanted nothing to do with God. And now you have a living heart. There's been a change. You're not like you once were. You don't think the things you once did. You don't do the things you once did, even though you might struggle with some. You're not who you once were. You're not who you will be, but praise God, you are not who you once were. You have the present experience of spiritual life, the new birth, which is also called regeneration. You have that. You've been given that by the Holy Spirit. Even though you still endure age and physical decay, even though you experience suffering and hardships and diseases, even though you experience physical death, nonetheless, in Christ and by His Spirit, you have spiritual life. Why is He telling you and me that? Well, it's because the first wonderful gift is something un touchable by sin and death. Though the body is going to pass away, the soul will remain and in Christ there it will live forever. Why is that good? Well, because whenever you come to the bedside of a mother or a father or a friend or a spouse or a child who's dying and who says, I know I'm dying and I'm terrified what's coming next. You can look them in the eyes and you can say, in Christ, you're going to live and you're not going to be in that box and you're not going to experience the decay you so fear. You're going to know the warmth and the love of the arms of the Father and you're going to see his face and you're going to experience the sound of the voice of Jesus and you're going to live. The spiritual life of the renewed, regenerated 
living Christian that though he die, yet shall he live. Death doesn't get the victory. That's the first gift. But you go on, and there's yet another R, just happens to be the case, resurrection grace. New birth, regeneration, it's wonderful. We all know, as Christians, that that's what we have. And for some people, I'm afraid that that's about as far as they look. They only see this. They only see the spirituality of your salvation, that your soul is renewed, that you're given a new heart and a new mind. And some people may just be comfortable. They think, well, it's good. I'm just ready to go ahead and get done with it. I'm ready to go ahead and get done with life so I can be with the Father. And suffering Christians experience that. And it's not an altogether wrong thing. It's not. There's some sobriety and goodness there and some real hope for the suffering Christian. But let me just say that's not all that the Christian has hope in. That's not the full promise. That's only half of it. That's not the whole thing. And we don't want to be ancient Platonists who believe that the great thing that we need to do is just have the soul removed from the wicked flesh. Kind of sounds like that. Especially if you only know regeneration and spiritual salvation. But I just want to put something to you, very simply. If it were only a spiritual salvation, and you're just waiting to get done with it, we would stand at the edge of Christian graves and just simply say, praise God, that's over. I'm very glad that that's behind us. And you almost hear the echoes of a suicidal tendency. If that's all you get, let's just get rid of this body. Let's become celestial beings and be in his face forever blessed. No, God made you in his image and after his likeness with a soul and a body. You're not just a part of a thing. You're not some dismembered spirit haphazardly occupying or possessing a physical form. That's not it at all. You were a mind, body, whole, and that's how he made you. That's how he made me. Because what does he say in verse 11? Well, it's so much more. It's the second part of it, and it's what we labor for. And I believe, for me at least, even as the body goes into the grave, it's where I get some comfort. Because you know what? I kind of like my toes, my fingers, my knees, my elbows. I like me, the whole of me. I'm not eager to get rid of my body. I'm eager to not feel any pain. I'm eager not to sin. I'm eager not to have diseases. But I kind of like me. I kind of like... At least how I was made, and that's a healthy and a right thing. And so in verse 11, he says this, If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Did you get that? He gives an assurance and he restates the promise of God that if Christ was resurrected from the dead and if he was done, he was resurrected by the power of the Holy Spirit, that that is the same spirit he's given to us. 
And that if our bodies enter the grave, it'll only be for a moment. The grave will not hold us. It can't hold our souls immediately and it will not hold our bodies forever. If I ask you the question, Christian, are you a little, a little bit unnerved by the idea, the prospect of being placed into a box and placed into the ground? Can you honestly give me an answer? Because if any of you say, no, I'm really looking forward to it. I love tight and enclosed spaces with no air to breathe. You're strange. Honestly, we have to say of ourselves, it's a little uncomfortable. I have faith in Christ. I know where my soul's going. I don't even want to think about that. I want to put that far away from my mind. I don't even want to guess what it could feel like in the body. Hoping nothing, nothing. I'm only with him. I only perceive that. And the body's just held in the grave waiting. That's where you need to be, Christian. But what he's telling you is this. The grave couldn't hold Christ's body. It will not hold your body. You're not going to live in heaven before the Father as just a disembodied ball of light of spiritual whatever. No, no, no. There's a day where just as sure as Christ walked forward from the grave, that you're going to walk forward from the grave. That if Christ is risen, risen indeed, you can say, I will be risen, risen indeed. It's reality that if he lives and if he's at the right hand of the Father, and that he who was slain has the emblems of his death on his hands and feet, I will likewise walk in life because he lived The second great blessing of the Holy Spirit. It's not some televangelist laying on hands. But it is the assurance that the Holy Spirit will not be united to a body that he leaves in the dirt. Praise be to God that he cares about you and knows every hair on your head. And he'll never lose you, soul or body. But you will live really before his face and completely without the stain of sin nor the sting of death. If you have faith in his son and have received his Holy Spirit. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the scriptures And we thank you for deep truths that invite us to be theologians and to simply think on you and to let our hearts go near you and to know what you have promised that you will do for us and that we are invited to know who you are and that, Lord, we have the assurance that in Christ and by the Holy Spirit, We're not only not your enemies, we're not only righteous, but that we have communion and fellowship with our creator, our Lord, our King, our Redeemer, our Helper, our Friend. Oh, Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us as Christian people to cling to this truth and to live in light of it. And Lord, for those who are here this morning who haven't that assurance, oh Lord, that they would run to Jesus by faith and find all of these wonderful gifts 
that they can have freely. Father, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.